I'd like to welcome you to our, our final service of May, May 31st. I want to call us to worship. I'm going to be using Psalm 106, Psalm 106. It is a beautiful passage calling us to worship the Lord. And I invite you now to hear the word of God. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are they who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people, come to my aid when you save them that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. Let us worship God. This morning we're continuing our series in the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation chapter two and three. And so we're gonna be reading about the fourth church in chapter two, beginning with verse 18. It is the church of Thyatira, which is interesting because we have a church by that name uh, nearby between here and Salisbury. And so I'm sure that they do not represent the church that Jesus is talking about. But when you see church names like Thyatira, you now know where they come from. They come from the scriptures where people starting churches were looking to have a name to define who their church was. This morning as we read, I invite you now to hear the word of God as we begin with chapter two, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Theratyra, write, these are the words of the son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnishing bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and by her teaching she misleads many servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose on any other burden on you only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. He will rule over them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. 
just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we study this word this morning, we ask, O oh God, uh, would you show us where we as a church might be hearing you speak, not only to the church in Thyatira, but to us as your people. Therefore, bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts that they would be pleasing unto you. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've gone through this series, I want to just remind you that we're reading about these letters to learn what it was that other churches struggled with how they struggled to be faithful to Christ and to represent Christ with the gospel in the world in their own cities. And to ask ourselves as Christians at Center Church, what struggles do we face in doing the same? And so in light of that, when we come to this letter, this fourth letter that is of seven that Jesus gives to the churches in that era, John is writing to them, John Island, the island of Patmos has been, has been reconciled to living on a rocky soil to try to encourage churches from a distance. And so by doing this, he's been instructed in a vision that he's seen of Christ, where Christ has come and now told him, tell these seven churches these things. And we think that every church read the other church's letter, so we know that there was some commonality of struggle. The most amazing thing is that the letter this morning deals with a town or a city that we know little of. It's the longest letter of the seven, but it's the most difficult letter to understand because there are things specifically tied to the culture of that city that may be lost to us this morning. We have no context in any other historical documents. And so there's some things that we have to work through in the scriptures to try to understand what it was that Jesus was addressing. But we do know this, that the city of Thyatira was a city of great commerce. It was a place of manufacturing and a place of marketing. It was a place known for having wool workers and linen workers, people who made garments and dyes. Uh, you go to the church in Philippi and you see some things like that spoken of there. Leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, bronze smiths. Uh, this was a city that was incredibly industrious, and because of that, it was a very important city and grew to be more important in the Roman economy. And yet, in that very city was also a worship of an idol, a god called uh, Tyrimnus, and it was later given the name uh, Apollos or Apollo. You will remember he was the son of Zeus. He was the sun god. And so this city's de deity, the, the idol that they were known to worship and revere was Apollo. And in that, they believed that they had great security in their manufacturing and in their making of things. That, that it was the god Apollo, the sun god, that blessed their commerce, their businesses. And so the business, the work guilds that were there in the city were intricately tied to the worship of Apollo. And interestingly enough, if you go back and read more about this, you'll find out that, that not only was Apollo the, uh, the sun god, 
but that the later Caesars, the leaders of Rome, would be called Apollos because they were called sons of God as well. And that begins to explain the address that Jesus gives to this church as we unfold this letter. He writes to them these words, I am the son of God, the, the true son of God is really what is being emphasized here. If you go back and look at the scriptures, you find that, that it's absolutely powerful how Jesus is drawing a differentiation between the false ones who think they're gods, meaning men who elevate themselves to such status, and the one true man God, Jesus, who came in, in the flesh and now has been resurrected and he's been elevated, exalted in the heavens. He now sits, as we say in the, in the Apostles' Creed, on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he's been given all authority and all power. And so the danger of worshiping this God idol in Thyatira is that the Christians would tolerate or even compromise of their allegiance to Christ by attributing to a stone what belongs only to Jesus, the title Son of God. And so in that address, as Jesus begins to address these these Christians, he reminds them first and foremost that the one who is speaking is the Son of God, and therefore he is first evident in his authority and power by his blazing eyes, the eyes that are like blazing fire. In other words, this Jesus has penetrating insights. He doesn't just see the surface of what's happening. He sees the deeper issues that are happening in the lives of those people. And secondly, his, his feet are like burnished bronze. And in that city with those smiths who worked with bronze, they would immediately understand that Jesus was claiming and proclaiming that he is the only one who has the strength and stability that this world needs to stand upon. You'll remember in the Gospels where Jesus talks about it being the rock, about how firm a foundation we have when we put our faith in the Lord. This is the kind of imagery that Jesus is bringing to these Christians in Thyatira, that he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is the one who can be trusted in for their forgiveness of their past, the needs of their presence, and the hopes of their future. It's something for you and I to ponder ourselves. Do you believe this about Jesus? This glorified, exalted Lord who now sits at the right hand of God the Father, who has been praying for you and interceding for you, do you understand this Jesus for yourself as the one who has been given all authority and power, and do you yield to him? But secondly, do you put your trust in his word so that no one will shake you from it. And yet when Jesus goes on to address these people, he says to them with great flattery, these words come from his mouth, I know your deeds and how your deeds in your love and your faith, in your service, in your perseverance for me have been increasing. And you think, man, these people love Christ. These people understand who Christ is. These people are standing on the word of God. They love him. And Jesus sees this and they know it because now he's revealed to them, I acknowledge it. I see it. Your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. And you think, boy, 
I want to go to that church. And then Jesus drops the other shoe. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, what could possibly be their problem? Well, apparently there had been a woman who had become very influential in their community. A convert. And her name is ascribed as Jezebel. Now, you'll remember that name as Jezebel as one of the queens of the Old Testament who led the children of Israel into great idolatry. She led them into the worship of Baal and in that worship she polluted the people by tearing down any representation of worship of one, the one true God and erecting places of worship to the idols of their days. Well, this woman, this Jezebel, was being tolerated in this community. Why tolerated? Well, apparently she had come to convert her life. She had come to believe in Christ, but in that conversion, she was mixing some of her own faith of what she knew of Christ with some of the pagan rituals that were being practiced in the city. First of all, she was a self-proclaimed prophetess. She was a person who believed and told others that God was giving her words of wisdom, words to profess, words to teach about how to follow Christ. And secondly, this teaching, as Jesus is pointing out, is not clearly following the feet that are stable, that word that has been given through the Lord that we're to stand upon. Apparently, this Jezebel has taken the words of Christ and used them in a twisting way to prop herself up as an authority. That's not unusual. We see that today in our own time, don't we? where people take the scriptures and they begin to preach the scriptures in such a way that they become more important than the very Lord who is the revealer of all things. And so when you and I begin to hear about this Jezebel, she is seducing the congregation and seducing them in this way. The, the guilds, the working guilds within the city of Thyatira were were counting on, they were believing in, they were following the teaching of Apollo and the sun god, and in doing so, they would come together in festivals and feasts, and they would worship by eating food that was been offered up to this idol, a sacrifice to this idol, and in doing that, they would have excessive parties, joyful occasions, exuberant gatherings, and this Jezebel was telling the Christians, look, we know that there is just one God. Let's go and enjoy the festival with everyone else. We can be good witnesses for Jesus there. The only problem is that these festivals were notoriously known for their immorality. That's kind of a lost word on us these days, immorality. When we think of sexual immorality, we think of Tremendous licentiousness. But when the Bible speaks of immorality, it speaks not only of sexuality, it speaks of a pattern of thought, a way of belief. And then the body is used to carry out that. And so immorality, as the Bible describes it, is not just a physical assault that the body it goes through, it's a spiritual assault that the soul compromises. 
in the truth of who God is. And so while these people were worshiping these idols or this idol and feasting on this food and partaking in the festivals, they were being led down the path that basically this says, well, we've been saved by grace. We're not condemned by the law anymore. We're under grace. Therefore, we are free in Christ. What frightens me the most is you hear that kind of teaching today in the church. Where people are being told it's okay to live an immoral life and believe in Jesus. And Jesus is looking at this church and saying, this is not okay. There is going to be some fruits that come from that kind of worship. The first is it doesn't honor God as who God is or the son for who he is or the authority which he has been given. Apparently this woman was a Christian or professed faith in Christ and Jesus says, I have given her time. Notice his patience. Notice the patience of the Lord for those who love him. He is patiently calling us to repentance. But she would not. She was unwilling to change, knowing probably that she was not leading people in the maturing of their faith. She was accommodating a religion of compromise that only led people to more suffering. And so the Lord says, I'm going to cast you on a bed of suffering. The, the word there really is, is powerful. It talks about a, 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 a dissatisfaction in so many ways of life that reaps something that is unpalatable. So it's not that God is going to reach down and squash Jezebel like a bug. He is going to allow her teaching and her unwillingness to repent, to become the very vessels that she will suffer tremendous suffering because of a loss of her acquaintance with Christ. You know, that's really what sin does, doesn't it? It separates us from the Lord. It causes us to have a barrier that we know is there that we cannot get around or hide or somehow obfuscate. It, it literally separates us in our spirit and we are aware of it and we become, we become diseased in our hearts and our, our love for Christ begins to grow cold. And as it grows colder, our prayers become less and the scripture reading becomes almost non-existent. And slowly but surely, the suffering that happens is instead of walking in the joy of our salvation, we, we incrementally wilt like flowers without sun or water. It's that kind of suffering that Jesus talks about. He says, I will make those who've, who've joined her in committing adultery to suffer intensely in the hopes that they will repent. Please notice that God is not trying to be punitive in the sense of being vindictive. This is not the Lord we know. He is a loving God, a loving Father. He brings judgment to bring repentance and restoration. 
It's when we resist the Lord that we find the greatest suffering of life. Well, why would God do that? Well, he tells us in verse 23, then all, all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, the one with blazing eyes and sees everything. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. The scriptures make it clear that we are saved by grace through faith. This is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone boast. And yet, there is also a teaching that when a person comes into faith in Christ, their love for God should be so evident that there are fruits that, that come out of their faith that are exhibited in their way of living. In other words, we do good works not to earn our salvation. We do good works in order to love God and give him thanks for what he has already accomplished for us in the cross. And so when we fail to give thanks and acknowledge what God has done for us in the cross, our love for God begins to grow cold and our works become more of a self-righteous work than a response to the grace that we've been given, which is exactly the opposite of the gospel. And so when Jesus says, I will repay you according to your deeds, he is speaking about the fact that each one of us as Christians will stand before the Lord and we will answer to the God who created and saved us what we did with the message of the gospel and how we lived it out. And yet there's great hope. He says in verse 24, now to those, to the rest of you in Thyatira, those who have not held to this teaching, those who have not listened to these words of Satan and tried to go to the deeper secrets that someone else has, I will not put any other burden on you except hold on to what you have, which was the truth of Christ. Hold on to that and let that truth be the ground in which you walk on, the foundation that you stand, put your trust in that, and I will tell you this, I'm not going to give you any more, any more instructions except hold on to that. Because if you do that, then you will find victory in the life that I give you. He says in verse 26, to the one who is victorious, the one who holds on to these words that I have given you to the end. Here's the promise. I will give you authority over the nations. What, what does he mean? Well, there's an allusion both in the Old Testament and the New that the Christian, those who believe in Christ, will be part of that great day of judgment where they will be given authority to render judgment over the world. And so Jesus is reminding that we are co-heirs, co-rulers in Jesus Christ. This is something the scriptures teach that we will not just be uh, servants of the Most High, we will be brothers and sisters of Christ in the family of God, that we will be elevated, exalted, glorified in such measure that God will bestow upon us authority that had been given to Christ and we will use that authority to bring glory to God. And secondly, he says, I will give you the morning star 
And there's probably been no scripture that has been more argued about as to the meaning of morning star when Jesus says this is what he would give the church for those who were faithful to his word. The morning star is a, is a, a word that's ascribed to Christ as the morning star. And it's morning star, when you think of the morning star, is the brightest light of the early morning. It's not really a star. It's the planet Venus, we know, that is reflecting the sun's rays as it, as it rises on the horizon of the earth. And that morning star is the brightest body in the sky in the morning. And so when Jesus says, I will give you the morning star, there could be a number of possibilities. It could be that Jesus is saying, I will give you myself. I will be with you. My glory will be shining from you. That's what it could mean. It could mean, it could mean that as the morning star would come on the horizon, ships that were on the sea would look to that morning star for the compass they needed to travel. And so it could be that Jesus says, for those of you who look to my word and hold fast to it, you will find that to be the compass, the mark, the, the, the measure by which you know you're heading in the right direction. Now here's the question for us this morning. Are we tolerating teaching that is leading us to deny our faith so that we live lives where we are immoral and use in the same breath that it's okay, we believe in Jesus. I was talking with someone who enjoys re watching a, a program called The Bachelor. And it's a story apparently of a young woman, or The Bachelorette, I'm not sure what the title of the story is. But anyway, the program on TV has a woman who has maybe, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, whatever, how many men wanting to marry her. And so they're competing to try to win her love during this half hour program that's over a series of weeks. And during that time, in one of the program episodes, one of the men who's wanting to marry this woman has an intimate moment with her. And in that intimate moment, he thinks that, that she is now in love with him. And so the time comes where she has to eliminate one of these guys. She decides she's going to eliminate him. And he is shocked because he says, I'm a Christian. And I thought you understood that when we had that intimate moment, it meant a commitment. And she turns around and says, well, I'm a Christian too, but you're not the one for me. In that one moment, our whole nation got the image, got the idea that I can be a follower of Christ and live without any boundaries in my sexuality. That's the teaching of Jezebel. The Bible says we were not called or created to live as immoral people. And that kind of lifestyle is what Christ came to save us from. Some of you struggle with this, and rightly so, because this is what God has come to save us from. 
We were slaves to this kind of lifestyle. We were trapped and now we have been saved by him who has the blazing eyes and the bronze feet. This is why he, we call upon him to deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me? Bless, O oh God, your word in our hearts. Help us repent from our own sins. Bestow upon us your spirit that we might live holy lives, loving, respecting, yielding to you. We will never be able to be pure without you, Jesus. Never can we be holy. And therefore, we need you. We need your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, and your power. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. And the people of God said together, Amen.